Chapter Eleven of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Eleven Passage of the Coast. We got clear of the islands before sunrise the next morning, and by twelve o'clock were out of the canal and off Point Conception, the place where we first made the land upon our arrival. This is the largest point on the coast, and is an uninhabited headland, stretching out into the Pacific, and has the reputation of being very windy. Any vessel does well which gets by it without a gale, especially in the winter season. We were going along with studding sails set on both sides, when, as we came round the point, we had to haul our wind and take in the lee studding sails as the brig came more upon the wind she felt it more and we doused the skysails but kept the weather studding sails on her bracing the yards forward so that the swinging boom nearly touched the spritsail yard she now lay over to it the wind was freshening and the captain was evidently dragging on her his brother and mr robinson looking a little disturbed said something to him, but he only answered that he knew the vessel and what she would carry. He was evidently showing off and letting them know how he could carry sail. He stood up to windward, holding on by the backstays and looking up at the sticks to see how much they would bear, when a puff came which settled the matter. Then it was hauled down and clew up royals, flying jib, and setting sails all at once there was what the sailors call a mess everything let go nothing hauled in and everything flying the poor mexican woman came to the companionway looking as pale as a ghost and nearly frightened to death the mate and some men forward were trying to haul in the lower studding sail which had blown over the spritsail yard arm and round the guys while the topmost studding sail boom after buckling up and springing out again like a piece of whalebone broke off at the boom iron i jumped aloft to take in the main top gallant studding sail but before i got into the top the tack parted and away went the sail swinging forward of the top gallant sail and tearing and sliding itself to pieces the halyards were at this moment let go by the run and such a piece of work i have never had before in taking in sail after great exertions i got it or the remains of it into the top and was making it fast when the captain looking up called out to me lay aloft there dana and furl that main royal leaving the studding sail i went up to the cross trees and here it looked rather squally the foot of the topgallant mast was working between the cross and trussle trees and the mast lay over at a fearful angle with the topmast below, while everything was working and cracking, strained to the utmost. There's nothing for Jack to do but to obey orders, and I went up upon the yard, and there was a worse mess, if possible, than I had left below. The braces had been let go, and the yard was swinging about like a turnpike gate, and the whole sail having blown out to leeward the lee leech was over the yard-arm and the skysail was all adrift and flying about my head i looked down 
but it was in vain to attempt to make myself heard, for every one was busy below, and the wind roared, the sails were flapping in all directions. Fortunately, it was noon and broad daylight, and the man at the wheel, who had his eyes aloft, soon saw my difficulty, and after numberless signs and gestures, got someone to haul the necessary ropes taut. During this interval, I took a look below. Everything was in confusion on deck. The little vessel was tearing through the water as if she had lost her wits, the seas flying over her, and the masts leaning over at a wide angle from the vertical. At the other royal masthead was Stimson, working away at the cell, which was blowing from him as fast as he could gather it in. The topgallant sail below me was soon clued up, which relieved the mast, and in a short time I got my sail furled and went below. But I lost overboard a new tarpaulin hat, which troubled me more than anything else. We worked for about half an hour with might and main, and in an hour from the time the squall struck us, from having all our flying kites abroad, we came down to double-reefed topsails and the storm-sails. The wind had hauled ahead during the squall, and we were standing directly in for the point. So, as soon as we had got all snug, we wore round and stood off again, and had the pleasant prospect of beating up to Monterey, a distance of a hundred miles against a violent headwind. Before night it began to rain, and we had five days of rainy, stormy weather, under close sail all the time, and were blown several hundred miles off the coast. In the midst of this we discovered that our foretopmast was sprung, which no doubt happened in the squall, and were obliged to send down the foretop gallant mast and carry as little sail as possible forward. Our four passengers were dreadfully seasick, so that we saw little or nothing of them during the five days. On the sixth day it cleared off, and the sun came out bright, but the wind and sea were still very high. It was quite like being in mid-ocean again, no land for hundreds of miles, and the captain taking the sun every day at noon. Our passengers now made their appearance, and I had for the first time the opportunity of seeing what a miserable and forlorn creature a seasick passenger is. Since I had got over my own seasickness, the third day from Boston, I had seen nothing but hale, hardy men, with their sea-legs on, and able to go anywhere, for we had no passengers on our voyage out. And I will own there was a pleasant feeling of superiority in being able to walk the deck, and eat, and go aloft, and compare oneself with the two poor, miserable, pale creatures, staggering and shuffling about decks, or holding on and looking up with giddy heads to see us climbing to the mastheads, or sitting quietly at work on the ends of the lofty yards. A well-man at sea has little sympathy with one who is seasick. He is apt to be too conscious of a comparison which seems favorable to his own manhood. After a few days we made the land at Point Pinos, which is the headland at the entrance of the bay of Monterey. As we drew in and ran down the shore, we could distinguish well the face of the country, and found it better wooded than that to the southward of Point Conception. In fact, as I afterwards discovered, 
Point Conception may be made the dividing line between two different faces of the country. As you go to the northward of the point, the country becomes more wooded, has a richer appearance, and is better supplied with water. This is the case with Monterey, and still more so with San Francisco, while to the southward of the point, as at Santa Barbara, San Pedro, and particularly San Diego, there is very little wood, and the country has a naked, level appearance, though it is still fertile. The Bay of Monterey is wide at the entrance, being about twenty-four miles between the two points, Año Nuevo at the north, and Pinos at the south, but narrows gradually as you approach the town, which is situated in a bend, or a large cove, at the southeastern extremity, and from the points about eighteen miles, which is the whole depth of the bay. The shores are extremely well wooded, the pine abounding upon them, and as it was now the rainy season, everything was as green as nature could make it, the grass, the leaves, and all. The birds were singing in the woods, and great numbers of wild fowl were flying over our heads. Here we could lie safe from the southeasters. We came to anchor within two cable lengths of the shore, and the town lay directly before us, making a very pretty appearance, its houses being a whitewashed adobe, which gives a much better effect than those of Santa Barbara, which are mostly left of a mud color. The red tiles, too, on the roofs, contrasted well with the white sides and with the extreme greenness of the lawn, upon which the houses, about a hundred in number, were dotted about, here and there, irregularly. There are in this place, and in every other town which I saw in California, no streets nor fences, except that here and there a small patch might be fenced in for a garden, so that the houses are placed at random upon the green. This, as they are of one story, and of the cottage form, gives them a pretty effect when seen from a little distance. It was a fine Saturday afternoon that we came to anchor, the sun about an hour high, and everything looking pleasant. The Mexican flag was flying from the little square presidio, and the drums and trumpets of the soldiers, who were out on parade, sounded over the water, and gave great life to the scene. Everyone was delighted with the appearance of things. We felt as though we had got into a Christian which in the sailor's vocabulary means civilized, country. The first impression which California had made upon us was very disagreeable. The open roadstead of Santa Barbara, anchoring three miles from the shore, running out to sea before every southeaster, landing in a high surf, with a little dark-looking town a mile from the beach, and not a sound to be heard nor anything to be seen but kanakas, hides, and talabags. Add to this the gale off Point Conception, and no one can be at a loss to account for our agreeable disappointment in Monterey. Besides, we soon learned, which was of no small importance to us, that there was little or no surf here, and this afternoon the beach was as smooth as a pond. We landed the agent and passengers, and found several persons waiting for them on the beach, among whom were some who, though dressed in the costume of the country, spoke English, and who, we afterwards learned, were English or Americans who had married and settled here. 
I also connected with our arrival here another circumstance, which more nearly concerns myself, viz. my first act of what the sailors will allow to be seamanship, sending down a royal yard. I had seen it done once or twice at sea, and an old sailor, whose favor I had taken some pains to gain, had taught me carefully everything which was necessary to be done, and in its proper order, and advised me to take the first opportunity when we were in port and try it. I told the second mate, with whom I had been pretty thick when he was before the mast, that I could do it, and got him to ask the mate to send me up the first time the royal yards were struck. Accordingly, I was called upon, and went aloft, repeating the operations over in my mind, taking care to get each thing in its order, for the slightest mistake spoils the whole. Fortunately, I got through without any word from the officer, and heard the well done of the mate, when the yard reached the deck, with as much satisfaction as I ever felt at Cambridge, on seeing a bayonet at the foot of a Latin exercise. End of chapter 11